We turn this morning to Philippians chapter 3. We turn to our series in, in Mark next week. Uh, but this week we're going to read Philippians chapter 3, the first 10 verses. Uh, though our, our focus uh, eventually here will be verse 10, the first half of verse 10, and considering what Paul says about the resurrection and the power of the resurrection. So Philippians chapter 3, verses uh, 1 through 10. This is God's holy and fallible word, so give careful attention as it's read. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death. I read a story recently about a man uh, last year, last spring, who uh, piled his life savings into uh, shorting certain stocks, expecting they would fail because of uh, COVID and all that was going on with that. And uh, they didn't. And he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, that led me to another story, a man who was convinced that this coffee company in China, Luckin Coffee, would uh, make him rich, that it was undervalued, and so he poured his life savings into it. And uh, shortly after that, a, a scandal broke out within this company, this coffee company, and it uh, plummeted, and he lost a quarter million dollars uh, as well. Well, there's some, in some ways, similar stories, uh, parables that Jesus tells about the kingdom of heaven, though they, they uh, end differently. Uh, in Matthew 13, he says the, the, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure uh, hidden in a field, and a man goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Gives all that he has for that field. Also, immediately after, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it, bought that one pearl. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God and, and life with the king, King Jesus, is, uh, uh, is, is the one thing that's infinitely valued, that's worthy of giving up all that you have. Uh, to, to acquire it. 
And today, as we consider the resurrection, Paul gives some testimony here in, in chapter 3 of Philippians uh, as to why he gave up everything in his life, in a sense, uh, to gain Christ, uh, to gain his kingdom. And we're going to focus on one aspect of that value, one reason that Paul says that it's worth giving up everything. Paul says his goal is to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection, uh, in verse 10. And again, that, that will be our, our focus in the end, but I, I want to also spend a little time uh, in uh, an overview of the first nine verses of what we read here, uh, leading up to helping us understand uh, what and why Paul says what he does in verse 10, knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection. Um, so looking at number one on your outline, um, leading up to Paul's stated desire there in verse 10. Verse 2, uh, Paul makes this maybe strange and strong statement, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. He's talking about those who were requiring, uh, those, those Jews who were requiring of converts that they follow the ceremonial Old Testament law, especially circumcision, that non-Jews who were converted to Christianity had to be circumcised, among other things. And there's, there's a clear example of this in the beginning of Acts 15. It says some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So the teaching was you, you have to follow these, these um, Old Testament regulations even to be saved. In verse 3, Paul says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He's saying we, himself, and the Philippians, it would include those who weren't Jews, are the true circumcision who put their faith in Christ. Circumcision was ultimately not something that was merely outward or physical, but it pointed to something that was, that was inward. Um, circumcision was a matter of the heart. We talked about that several weeks ago in connection with uh, baptism. And so Paul says we are those with no confidence in the flesh. That is, we don't put any security in our relationship with God in terms of um, ourselves or the family that we're born into or our performance uh, of, of religion. Uh, these things may be blessings, but they don't save. They never did uh, save in and of themselves, even in the Old Testament. Um, the same is true for us. We, we have no confidence uh, ultimately in, in baptism or in your Christian family or your church attendance in, in these things by themselves. Um, they do not save. He goes on in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. That is, Paul saying, I, I do have a, uh, an impressive resume. If, if this is what counted, uh, I, I have um, quite a list that I could share. If anyone else has a mind, he says, to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. If this is the game, if this is the competition, uh, I, I can win at that uh, with my resume. And he goes on to list his credentials, uh, at least previously as, as a self-righteous Jew. Verses 5 and 6, he was circumcised exactly by God's command. He was ethnically an Israelite and could name his tribe and maybe had some pride in, in that tribe as well. He was a, a Pharisee in terms of his obeying God's law as, as, as he understood it anyways. Uh, outwardly, he was meticulous in following um, the, the traditions and the hedges around God's law that had built up. Uh, verse 6, um, he, he 
points to as being a leader in, in fighting for truth, again, as, as he saw it, fighting against heresy. He was persecuting Christians, imprisoning them, um, participating in their death, even. Um, and verse 6 goes on, he again highlights um, his relation to God's laws. He understood it. He was, he was blameless. People would look at him and say, what a, what a pious man uh, he was. And so it's a shocking statement then that he makes in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, this, this impressive resume that was, that was upholding my, my identity and my confidence in who I was before God, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Those things that were most valuable, that he was, had most pride in, were the great source of, of satisfaction and, and his identity, um, as, as a believer, he thought he counted loss. They were not what he thought they were. They weren't means to be used toward the ends that he was using them for. Verse 8, moreover, I count all things to be loss. He says, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. What's rubbish? Rubbish is trash, right? It's waste. He counts them as, as worthless and don't miss what Paul is saying about, uh, and the things that he's saying this about here. You know, sometimes um, growing up, I had friends in um, Roman Catholic tradition who, for Lent, would, would give up something like candy bars or smoking or, you know, lots of TV or, or things like, you know, maybe things that would be maybe good to give some up of it, of it anyways. These are not the kinds of things that Paul is saying he gave up. He's not saying I gave up cheating and smoking and lying and fornicating and that, and that kind of thing for the sake of Christ. No, he, he's giving up things that have to do with following God's law. And, and it's his, his heritage he has within God's chosen people and the mark of God's covenant in him. These are the things he considered most valuable and important in one sense. And now he is saying they're as worthless as trash to him in another sense. In, in what sense does he mean that? Because these things are not, not bad in and of themselves. They, they're great blessings. They could be great blessings in and of themselves. He considers them worthless now in the sense of, of trusting in them. Right? These things giving him security uh, in and of themselves, in himself, in, in terms of who he is before God. They gave him confidence that he was right with God because he was born into the right family, because he went through the right motions. He came to realize these things don't make him a child of God. Uh, they were worthless. They were trash in, in terms of that goal. And the same again is true for you. you. You can have no confidence in anything inherent in you or in your circumstances. In the fact that you were simply baptized or that you know things about Jesus or that you serve on a committee at church or, or any of these things. Good things. Right? Gifts of God, but um, they don't take care of your sin. These things don't in and of themselves free you from your guilt before a holy God. They don't allow you to consider yourself part of his family in and of themselves. So in verse 8, as we move on to number 2 in your outline, the end of verse 8, uh, Paul explains further why and how he would, he would give all of this up. Why, why he would... Um, give all of these things up in terms of a, uh, an impressive resume or an assurance of where he stood with God. 
Uh, verse 8 at the end, he says, that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. Or in verse, uh, verse 10, he says, that I may know Him. Just think about when, you know, when Paul was treasuring all these other things, uh, being an Israelite, the fact that he was circumcised and following all of the Pharisaical tradition and, and laws, he was feeling secure in these things. Uh, what, what did Paul hate in that time? What, what was he opposed to and fighting against? He was fighting against the church, right? this Jesus cult as he saw it. And now he counted all of that as lost, as rubbish, and he to gain Jesus. Right? It's, it's a remarkable turnaround, an incredible flip. That is, he, he could hope in and, and feel secure and trust in Jesus in the same way that he put trust in and security uh, and confidence in all of those other things before. He says there's those things all count for nothing in terms of uh, earning uh, favor with God and a relationship with God, that is all found in Christ. I set all of that aside to gain Christ. He realized that he was dead in sin and helpless. There was nothing he could do to save himself. That it, it didn't contribute to that if he was the holiest guy in church or the most zealous or if he was going through the right motions or born into the right nation or the right family. Uh, he needed righteousness to be right with God, right? but his own righteousness could not uh, cut it. He, he couldn't uh, give himself any kind of assurance uh, in anything that, that he was. His only hope was that he would receive righteousness from God and, and a perfect sacrifice to cover his sins, to take away his guilt. And this is what he found in Christ. This is what he gained in Jesus this is what he explains in verse 9, that his goal is to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, that is, by my own performance of religion. That he found that that was impossible. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. This is what, what Jesus did and offered uh, and promised. It was Jesus' perfect obedience. Uh, that Paul needed to be given. And that became his assurance. That became his only hope for life with God, for pleasing God. Um, it was by giving up hope or pride in anything else, and anything that he was, anything that he had done, um, this is how he gained Christ. Uh, he also then speaks of, of knowing Christ. He had gained Christ, and now he wants to know Christ more and more. Verse 8 speaks of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus. And again, verse 10, that I may know him. Uh, his, his desire now is to continue growing in knowing Jesus. What, is, what, is that, what does that mean? What, before we consider the particular content of that, what... What generally might Paul mean by knowing Jesus? What does that mean? In a couple of senses, we, that, that could be meant. He could uh, certainly be speaking about knowing who Jesus is, uh, what he did, what he taught, um, uh, what his purposes are, and so on. So information about Jesus, that's certainly essential. But secondly, it's much more than that. Uh, certainly Paul means by knowing Jesus, knowing him in terms of, of knowing him in relationship understanding the power and influence he has on, on his life, who he is, 
in Jesus. Maybe some of you this morning know Jesus in that first sense. You know some things about him. You know what he taught and who he was and what he claimed. Uh, but do you know him in the second sense? Do you know him in relationship with him? Uh, do you trust him? I think about how different is your knowledge of, of a neighbor or a coworker uh, from your knowledge of, of a spouse. Right? Truly knowing Jesus this way leads to, to loving him, desiring to be like him, and, and ultimately trusting him, uh, trusting his, his promises. Uh, giving your life to him. And this is what leads Paul to express this, this desire in verse 10. He's saying, having realized that the things that I hoped in and trusted in and boasted in were not worthy of that, I, I now consider them worthless towards, towards that end of being right with God in order to gain Christ, who only can make me acceptable to God. And, and I now desire to know him more and more. Well, what does Paul say about the content of that, that knowledge? We're moving to number three on your outline. In verse 10, he says that I may know him, and then he lists, he defines that in two ways, and our focus will be on the first one, that I may know him, defined as the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Uh, the power of his resurrection. I think many Christians are not uh, clear on the significance of Christ's resurrection. We're not going to talk about that in full this morning, but um, do you know why it was necessary? I'm not sure many Christians know. What, you know what, what does it mean for me? What does the resurrection mean for the church? Was Jesus raised for, for his sake and for our sake as well? What, what difference does it make in our lives? What part does it play in our salvation? Well, 132 years ago, in Easter, 1889, uh, Charles Spurgeon um, offered four aspects of this power, the power of the resurrection, uh, what, what that might mean. And so I want to share with you each, each um, of those titles, uh, each of those, those points, and give some thoughts on each this morning. So in, in answer to the question, what is the power of his resurrection? What, what does it mean for you uh, are these four uh, lettered points that you see on your outline. So first, uh, the power of the resurrection is an evidencing power. An evidencing power. It proves and shows the power of God in Jesus as, as the Son of God. Uh, it's often said there are two things in life that are certain, right? What are those? Death and taxes, right? Taxes next week, right? Um, in reality, death is far more certain than taxes. A lot of people find their way around paying taxes, right? They will next week. Um, but no one finds their way around death, right? And in that sense, death is, is the most formidable foe that, that humans face. It's the most certain thing. It's, it's uh, the most powerful certainty in our material existence, in a way. Um, Christ overcame death. Uh, that's what he overcame. Let, let that sink in. If, if Jesus overcame the most certain, unconquerable enemy that humanity faces, what, what can he not do? Uh, does it not point to the fact that he has the power of God himself, that God is with him and working through him, in fact that he is God himself, if he overcame death? And Romans 1 
Paul says, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus was chiefly evidenced to be the Son of God, God himself, in raising from the dead. And be encouraged and assured by the resurrection that, that your Lord Jesus is the Son of God. He was sent from the Father with all power and authority that, that was given to him. Uh, Jesus' death was the Father's will for him because the resurrection was also his will for him. Um, and God's power will work what is best for you as well in Christ. Uh, from Romans 8, Paul says, We know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. And Paul asks, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He will give us all things in Christ who raised first as, as the first fruits of all of us who were raised. So it's an evidencing power, uh, the power of the risen King Jesus and, and his power towards you. Secondly, letter B, uh, the power of the resurrection is a justifying power, a justifying power. Uh, as you uh, well know, I trust Jesus was sent to the cross to pay the penalty for sins, uh, to be the perfect once-for-all sacrifice uh, in your place, um, uh, to purchase you as his people. What is the significance of the resurrection? And the resurrection, in, in large part, is, is like a, a, a proof that God accepted uh, Jesus' sacrifice, that, that God was pleased with Jesus, that his work was finished. It's like a receipt of payment of what Jesus accomplished on the cross an assurance that God received it and was pleased with it. And, and part of the significance is that if God accepted Jesus and his sacrifice, he accepts you. If your faith is in Jesus, if your sins are on him and the cross, your sins are paid for. You stand justified before God, as, as Paul describes in, in verse 9 here. You're, you're washed of your sins. That's brought out in a number of passages in the New Testament, that God was pleased with Christ's sacrifice, and that that is shown by the resurrection. So in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, Paul, part of his discussion there is that if, if Christ didn't raise, then everything else that we hoped about him and are teaching about him is not true. So it's, it's not as if, uh, you know, if Jesus had died on the cross, that everything had happened as it did, and Jesus died on the cross but he didn't raise, we didn't hear or see from him again, well, we'd just be down, you know, we'd be down one amazing miracle in the Gospels, but, you know, Jesus died for you and your sins. That, that wouldn't be true. There would be no, no reason to have confidence uh, that, that Jesus was who he said he was, that he conquered death, that he paid for sins, that, that his death was an atoning death, that God accepted it. Uh, and so Paul's conclusion there in 1 Corinthians 15 is if, if Jesus did not raise, you are still in your sins. That, those are the words of, of Paul. His death becomes simply as insignificant as, as anyone else's death. 
Uh, Romans 4, Paul writes uh, of him, Jesus, who raised, or uh, of, of the Father, sorry, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Your justification is confirmed in, in the resurrection. Romans 8, again, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's a justifying power. And thirdly, letter C, uh, the power of the resurrection is a life-giving power. A life-giving power. We need to remember that Jesus uh, is life. Uh, in a sense, uh, by God's plan of redemption, Jesus is life. And in one sense, we don't uh, properly speak of having life and having Jesus. Right? The two are, are inseparable. Life is in Jesus alone. Any kind of ultimate or eternal life, true life. Jesus says in John 14, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. Jesus raised and lives and reigns to give us life. Uh, he, gives, he has the power to give life to uh, whomever he will. Uh, Jesus is and gives life. And that, that gives us comfort and confidence in, in a number of ways. That, that he will save you. Uh, that he will continue to give you life in him. And eternal life with him. Jesus will continue to save you and complete your salvation. It also gives us confidence that he will save others. Right? It gives us great confidence and, and hope and motive and joy uh, in, in witnessing right, to friends or family or others who, who don't yet know him as Savior. Uh, he has the power and will continue uh, through you to save uh, others. Uh, Charles Spurgeon um, uh, give a, an illustration that's appropriate to um, this, this time of year into April, maybe a few, a few weeks um, early in, in our climate here, but it, it's a, an illustration about April uh, in terms of the power uh, of Christ in giving life. He says, The sun is, to the vegetable world, a great source of growth. In this month of April, he goes forth with life in his beams, and we see the results. The buds are bursting, the trees are putting on their summer dress, the flowers are smiling, and even the seeds which we see buried in the earth are beginning to feel the vivifying warmth. They see not the Lord of day, but they feel his smile over what an enormous territory is the enormous sun continually operating. How potent are his forces when he crosses the line and lengthens the day. And then he makes this comparison, such as the risen Christ. In the grave he was like the sun in his winter solstice, but he crossed the line in his resurrection. He has brought us all the hopes of spring and is bringing us the joys of summer. He is quickening many at this hour and will yet quicken myriads. This is the power with which the missionary goes forth to sow. This is the power in which the preacher at home continues to scatter the seed. This, the risen Christ is the great producer of harvests. By the power of his resurrection, men are raised from their dead, death in sin to eternal life. And that's the power um, in which every Christian plants seeds and, and continues to pray for, for the lost, um, for loved ones and friends. And then finally, 
uh, letter D, the power of the resurrection is a consoling power. A consoling power, a, a comforting power, and uh, maybe a more common word to us. We've already considered the fact that the resurrection in part displays uh, such great power because of the power and certainty of death. Uh, because death is so powerful and so certain, uh, the resurrection is seen as so powerful. And I think most of us here, if not all of us, have experienced the agony of, of death close to us. Uh, whether a close friend or a family member, maybe even a spouse or a child. The resurrection comforts us in our mourning. It, it proclaims uh, freedom, at least for those who are in Christ, from the finality of death. Uh, we know where those who are in Christ are. We, we know where they will be. We know something of what they will be on that last great day. Right? And what a great comfort in the face of, of the last great enemy um, that is. We, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we don't mourn as those who don't have hope. Uh, we do mourn, we must mourn, uh, but not without great hope. It also comforts you in regarding to your, your, your own deaths. Right? The resurrection pleads with you that you not fear death. That doesn't mean that dying may, may not be uh, great suffering in some way, but death is not the end uh, for those in Christ. Um, your body dies for a time, but in death you're united with your Lord. You will be raised again as Christ was. It's also a comfort regarding the cause of Christ and, and the church, the cause of the gospel. Uh, again, that. He has risen and will reign until all of his enemies are underfoot. Psalm 110. Right? Whatever, whatever fear or suffering or evil we faced, it's in essence been doomed by the resurrection. And Jesus will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's his, his promise. Our powerful uh, risen Lord. Uh, that's his promise. So may it be your desire this morning to know, as Paul describes, know the Lord Jesus more, particularly the power of his resurrection for your life, to know his power toward you, to know uh, the justification that's proclaimed in the resurrection, to receive uh, its life-giving power, and to be comforted uh, in all that the resurrection proclaims to us. But to have all of that for the, for the power of the resurrection, as Paul describes, to be power, a powerful part of your life, uh, you have to give up everything else in the sense that Paul says he did. Right? You have to uh, lose everything else. Or in the words of Jesus, die. You have to die to self. Um, take up your cross in the sense of giving up hope and, and ultimate satisfaction or security in anything else, anything that you are or anything that you have, uh, and die with Christ, lay your sins on Him, uh, rest in the power of His death and His resurrection alone for your security, your security in terms of your relationship with the Lord, or your security in knowing that you have life uh, in Him. So may it be your prayer that you would know that power more and more. And I'm just going to close with, uh, this, is, this is Paul's prayer uh, for those he wrote to in Ephesus. Uh, a couple of verses from Ephesians chapter 1. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? And these are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let's close in prayer. Our Father in heaven, uh, we thank you again this week for your word and for the the power and hope that it proclaims uh, to us. We thank you for the example of Paul in uh, setting aside anything that would uh, be gain or hope or confidence to him um, in terms of having life or having um, a relationship with you or your favor uh, in order to gain Christ. Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us by your Holy Spirit to, to have that attitude, to have that perspective. Uh, help us to grow in, in knowing Christ and the power of his resurrection and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Um, increase our knowledge in that now as we um, share in the Lord's Supper as well. We pray in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.